Well, good morning, Battle Creek Church. Happy Father's Day. And uh, can we just give it, one, uh, give it up one more time for Tony and Vonda? We're so glad that you guys are here. And uh, can we welcome those joining us online and in the chapel today? We're so glad that you're here with us. And I just want to encourage you, if you're watching online, share the experience, invite someone to engage in what God is doing here at Battle Creek Church. You know, we've been in the midst of this series that we've been calling Battle Ready, uh, which has really been all about how to have a winning battle plan. And we've said time and time again, that life is full of battles. And unfortunately, the battle is not always obvious. But fortunately, Scripture is full of examples for us to glean from. We see personal examples of personal battles in Scripture. We see family battles and, and physical battles and spiritual battles. And, and we, as we've been looking through the Psalms, we've been able to see the, the prayers that they've prayed and the songs that they've sung through the battles that they've faced. And so we began this series looking in Psalm 1. And we saw that there's an overarching battle plan and, and really the need for us to re-engage. Sometimes it's easy to step back, but we have to re-engage in the battle. And really the plan is to avoid the way of the wicked and then to pursue the way of God. And then in Psalm 51, we looked at a psalm of lament and we saw how we need to recalibrate if we lose a battle. And we said that recalibrating looks like purifying and, and cleansing our hearts. And then last week, leaders from our next-gen ministry broke down Psalm 8 for us and talked about how to refocus our family and faith through worship and through serving and, and leading out. And here's what we know about battles. What we know is that there are often a collateral damage that will come through the battles that we face. There's this wake of destruction that requires restoration. In fact, many times we can look back on what was and begin to feel sad about what currently is. And maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe you are between what was and what could be. And maybe you feel like God has started something in your life that hasn't come to fruition, that hasn't been finished yet. And so how do we restore what's been lost or what's been broken in, in our lives? And the good news is that God is a God of restoration. And I do want to take a moment to define the word restoration as we jump in today, because especially here in church, we can throw around words like restoration and reconciliation and redemption. And there's a lot of similarities, but they're not the same. So we're going to look at some definitions together. You may want to write these down. The first one is reconciliation. Reconciliation. This is when two parties come together to make a path forward. Two parties coming together to make a path forward. And reconciling, this is an accounting term. It's about reconciling the debits and the credits of an account. And so when you think about a relationship, there's reconciling good things that have happened and maybe some not so good things and two parties coming together to figure out how do we move forward. The, the second definition would be restoration. And this is when something is brought back into its original form. And so you can restore a, a car or, or a home uh, back to its original or good condition. Uh, thanks to Chip and Joanna. We've got like a million and a half shows on restoration. You can re there's shows on restoring uh, motorcycles and cars and homes. I mean, just about everything. And so that's what restoration is. Uh, it's when something is brought back into its original form. And finally, we, we have redemption. And redemption is when one party helps another to regain status that was lost. Uh, 
And, and so often we talk about how Christ has redeemed us by paying a price that we couldn't pay so that our holiness, our status would be regained. And that's really the difference between reconciliation and restoration and redemption. And I know some of us are more illustrative in general, in nature. And so we need like an illustration or a story to help us put this together. So here's, imagine this. Imagine that you've got someone, a friend of yours, who has a 1964 Porsche 911 that's just been sitting in their garage for 40 years. And let's just imagine, because we're all imaginative people, that, uh, that, that today they said, hey, I want to give this car to you. Happy Father's Day. Uh, this is my gift to you. And so you take this car and you go through the process of removing the rust and cleaning the dust and rewiring all the electronics, repainting it, rebuilding the engine, and you bring this back to its 1964 glory. That is restoration. That is what restoration is. It's bringing it back to its original form. And now because of the restoration process that's taken place, you have redeemed its value. Uh, it has regained worth that was lost. And, and because of this process of restoration, you now have to reconcile how much you spent on it with your spouse. <laughs> so, you see how that all plays out? You've got restoration, reconciliation, and redemption. And for God, for God, restoration is all about the redemption of his creation. We see in Genesis 1 that God creates the world and mankind. And when he looks at everything he created, he said, it is good. It is all how it should be. There's that Hebrew word, shalom, uh, which means peace or wholeness, completeness. But when sin entered the world, what was good became fractured. And so God sent Jesus to reconcile us to him, to redeem us as his people. And ultimately, we see that God is restoring all of creation. He's making it whole again. But as you know, and, and as we've experienced, our world continues to see the effects of sin and brokenness. We have a fallout with some friends or maybe a distant or a wayward child, or maybe dealing with an, an absent parent in your life. Maybe our joy has been robbed by circumstances that are just entirely outside of our control. And so we long for restoration. And the good news is that God's nature, his desire is to restore. God wants to restore our joy and our hope and our peace in our life. In fact, not only does God want us to experience restoration in our lives, but God wants us to be agents of restoration in our world. And so if you have a Bible with you today, I want to encourage you to go to Psalm 126. This is where we're going to be. If you've got a mobile device, feel free to use that Bible app, and you can search for our sermon notes through the events tab there. And as you're turning there, I want to help paint the scene for where we're at, because we see that throughout the Old Testament, God proclaims to his people, if you follow my commands and if you follow my ways, things will go well. You will prosper. But if you disobey my commands, if you go your own way, things will not go well. And it seems easy to us that really the instruction was avoid the way of the wicked and pursue the way of God. Well, the people of God, Israel, they decide to go their own way. They decide to do their own thing. And eventually, because of their hard hearts, God removes his hand of protection from them. And this is what we see in 2 Chronicles 36. It says that God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. 
He, meaning Nebuchadnezzar, carried, the, uh, carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. And it continues on this passage, in this passage, to say that those who didn't die were then exiled to Babylon. They were enslaved. And it wasn't until some 50 years later that we see Cyrus the Great decreed that though the exiles in Babylon could return and rebuild the temple. In fact, we read about their return in the book of Ezra. And the prophet Ezra records that in that day and age, you couldn't distinguish between the weeping and the rejoicing. There was rejoicing because the home, uh, they were home and the temple was being restored, but there was weeping. There was weeping because everything paled in comparison to life before exile. And this is the setting. This is the backdrop of Psalm 126. And we see it begin as so many of the Psalms do with this editorial note. It says, a song for pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem. Now, these pilgrims are not the Thanksgiving pilgrims that we often think of and come to mind, but these pilgrims were the Israelites who were traveling to Jerusalem to worship. And so you have to think more pilgrimage or journey. I know many of you are going to take a journey or a pilgrimage this summer to visit home or some place of significance in your life. And for Israel, this happened at least three times a year for the different annual feasts that were prescribed in the Old Testament. And since they were ascending to Jerusalem, it's called a psalm of ascent. Uh, This psalm was sung on the way up to Jerusalem as they traveled there. Now here in America, we often think on a map, we think of north as up. Uh, So we go up to Kansas City and we go down to Dallas if you're here in Tulsa. However, regardless of where you were in Israel, Jerusalem was always up. It was always up and it was for a couple of different reasons. One, Mount Zion was uh, literally higher in altitude. And so no matter where you were as you were traveling to Jerusalem, you were going up to it. But the second reason is because there was a heightened place that it had in the spiritual lives of the Israelites. And so they were going up to a higher place. There's actually a handful of these Psalms of Ascent that we see in the book of Psalms. And so you could consider this the the road trip playlist for the Israelites as they're making their journey up to Jerusalem. And and this is how it begins in verse 1. It says, when the Lord brought back his exiles to Jerusalem, it was like a dream. We were filled with laughter and we sang for joy. And the other nations said, what amazing things the Lord has done for them. Yes, the Lord has done amazing things for us. What joy. And so we see the first half of this psalm. It's all about the past. It's a celebration and a declaration of what God has done. And for believers, we all have these moments that we can look back and see God's hand at work. We can see when God restored something that had been broken or lost in our lives. Uh, They're like mental snapshots for us that uh, it's almost as if they serve as anchor points for our faith. In fact, I'll often pray over people as they're being baptized, that the memory of that moment would just be sealed in their mind. 
that they'd be able to look back on it in the future to be reminded of God's faithfulness and the family of believers that are there cheering them on. We all need those anchor points. We all need those things in our faith that we can look back on and be reminded. It's why we have photo albums. I don't know if your family is anything like mine, but we have these Shutterfly books. We have one for like every year. And then all the trips that we've taken, I couldn't count how many we had, but it's so fun to be able to go back and look at photos and go, man, I I love to remember what God was doing in that season. Or to look at other photos and and to be reminded that I don't ever want to wear that outfit ever again. (laughs) You know, photos are great for us. We need to be reminded. In fact, I think that's the only reason we still use Facebook anymore. It's for the memories. We like to see them pop up on our our timeline, kind of like this memory here uh, of Pastor Alex. For those of you who don't know, this is Pastor Alex and MC Hammer Pants dancing to MC Hammer. And occasionally this pops up. And if you're wondering, this is my contact photo for him on my phone. (laughs) So every time he calls, this is what pops up and I have to compose myself before I answer the phone. I love it. Uh, but the Israelites, they're, they're reflecting on God's work of restoration. They're looking back on those memories and they're saying, it was like a dream. Not like the dreams that we have while we're sleeping. Uh, it, it's actually a very different dream that they're talking about in the ancient Near East. Uh, dreams then were associated with divine revelation. And so they were proclaiming that their return from exile was God's hand at work. In fact, the prophet Isaiah prophesied that it would be by the Lord that the Israelites would return and that praise would come. We see it in Isaiah 51. It says that those who have been ransomed by the Lord will return. They will enter Jerusalem singing, crowned with everlasting joy. Sorrow and mourning will disappear and they will be filled with joy and gladness. And that's really what we see in the first few verses of Psalm 126. We see laughter and joy and songs of praise. In fact, the surrounding nations who had once ridiculed Israel were now acknowledging the amazing things that God had done for them. God's restoration, it brings glory to himself. We've said time and time again that worship is evangelistic. That when we allow it to be a part of our testimony, to to be a part of our praise, then our lives become a window through which people will see the one true God. And and here's the first point that I want to make today. If we are going to be agents of restoration in our world, if you want to experience restoration in your life, then the very first thing that we need to do is we need to praise God for past restoration. We need to praise God for past restoration. All of us, have experienced God's faithfulness in our lives. And so we need to declare it. In fact, this declarative praise is a significant testimony to God. And let me explain what I mean by that. The people of Israel were not the only people to write Psalms. We have Psalms that were written to other gods by other nations. And there are some similarities between these Psalms and the Psalms of Israel, but there are also stark differences. For example, uh, throughout these psalms, we see descriptive praise. It's found in psalms throughout the ancient Near East. And descriptive praise describes who a God is. I mean, it really focuses on their attributes and and what they're like. But uh, even the Babylonians, we saw that they have psalms to other gods containing descriptive praise. But declarative praise, declarative praise is only found in the psalms of Israel. 
And why is that significant? This is key. Declarative praise declares what God has done. It is a praise of thanksgiving for answered prayer. It's only found in the Psalms of Israel because only the God of Israel, the God that has been revealed to us in the pages of scripture is capable of answering our prayers. You can, you can describe what other gods are like, but you can't declare what other gods have done. There is only one God who has all knowledge and all power and all authority. And so declarative praise, it is a significant testimony to God. And that's what's happening in this first half of Psalm 126. They're celebrating all that God has done, the joy that they have. They're, they're celebrating the past restoration they've experienced. But then everything begins to shift in verse 4. You see, they, they've returned to Jerusalem and they've come back from exile, but everything around them is still in shambles. They've been restored to their land, but their land has not yet been restored. And so they find themselves in this tension between what God has started, but what God is now bringing to fruition. Their restoration, it's a both already and not yet. And many of us find ourselves in similar situations today. We have past joys that we've experienced, and we have future joys that we're hoping for. It can be your job. You know, maybe it began with great joy. You saw some tremendous opportunity, and there were some early wins, but now, if you're honest, you're just feeling stuck. Maybe there's been some turnover, and you're starting to feel overlooked or overworked, maybe underpaid, and, and you just want to experience that joy in your work again. Maybe for some of you, it's, it's in raising children. When you first brought that child home, there's these great aspirations and expectations for your kids. And, and you remember the unspeakable joy when you first held that beautiful baby and, and, and your heart melted when they first said, Dada. And then they developed a will. <laughs> and, and beautiful baby turned into teenage terror. And you're like, this is hard. This is expensive. And you're thinking, man, I just want joy to be restored in this. And, and maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's in your marriage. As you dated, you were inseparable. And, and, and many of your friends found you insufferable. You were just head over heels in love. And, and you got married and you look into their eyes and you think, man, how did I get so lucky? And now maybe today you're looking and going, how did they get so lucky? <laughs> And maybe some of that joy has, has worn off and, and you just want to see joy restored. Well, verse four, it moves from praise to petition. It goes from God, I've seen what you've done to now, God, here's what I'm asking you to do. And so let's look at verse four together. They say, restore our fortunes, Lord, as streams renew the desert. Now, I, I don't know how many of you have grown up or have been around a desert. I grew up in the desert of Las Vegas and then spent about a decade in the high desert of Northern Nevada. And in the desert, water or the, the streams as it's talking about, uh, water is not just essential, water comes at a premium. In fact, there are rules around what days you can water your lawn and what time of day you can water your lawn and for how long you can water your lawn. And they're not just suggestions, like you will be fined for watering your lawn incorrectly. And I remember when Sarah and I first moved here, we were driving down, I think it was downtown somewhere, and we saw a fire hydrant just open. Water was flooding the streets. Guys, we called the fire department. 
we're like, what are you doing? And, and we called the non-emergency number, but it was an emergency in our minds. We're like, this water is being wasted. And they said, you must not be from around here. I kid you not, our first week in Oklahoma, there was more rain in that one week than Nevada got in an entire year. I was getting ready to build an ark. <laughs> I was like, this is crazy. Flat roofs in the desert, not a problem. Here in Oklahoma, it's a different story. I had no idea uh, what we were getting into. And, and the Israelites, really, they're asking God to restore them like streams restore a desert. Because when a desert experiences a dry season, it can be detrimental. In fact, the, the desert that's being referenced here in verse 4 is, is uh, the word Negev, a desert that was just south of Jerusalem. And the word Negev in Hebrew literally means dry or parched. And so the Israelites, they're comparing their experiences to a very dry and, and parched season of life, a season in which they need God's rain and his provision. And they understood that rain is completely outside of our control. And that's really the picture that's being painted here. They're, they're recognizing that their fortunes, their restoration is fully in God's hands. And so if we're going to be agents of restoration in our world, if we're going to experience restoration in our lives, not only do we need to praise God for past restoration, but we also need to pray to God for future restoration. We need to pray to God for future restoration. We appreciate what he's done, but we also anticipate what he will do. We see that God is the one who sends the rain. And once we realize this, we, we just throw all dependency on him. We pray and ask God to do what only he can do. They've experienced God's restorative work in the past, the fact that he brought them back. And so they're praying, God, would you do it again? How many times have you prayed that prayer? The word restore that we see in verse four here is actually the same word as brought back uh, that we saw in verse one. And so it could be that the Israelites are asking God to bring back more of their people. In fact, I, I didn't know this until I was studying it this week, but when the Israelites returned from exile, which we read about in Ezra 2, tells us that only 50,000 Israelites came back which meant that tens of thousands did not return. And that might be why they're praying. They're praying that, God, would you bring them back? And you might be asking, well, why didn't they all return? This is fascinating. Many Israelites chose to stay in Babylon. History tells us they chose to stay there because they had built considerable wealth and acquired many possessions. In other words, they've grown content. They no longer desired God's restorative work in their life. And don't miss this. Sometimes, sometimes uh, what we have, our possessions or our lifestyle can stand in the way of the restoration that God wants to bring. Amen. Many exiles in Babylon were more concerned about losing what they had than they were with gaining what God wanted to give. And maybe that's a question that you need to ask today. Could it be that you are more concerned about losing what you have than gaining what God wants to give? You see, praying for future restoration, praying is about yielding to his plans. God wants to bring redemption to his fallen creation, but it won't be on our terms. Restoration requires leaving Babylon, 
Remember, Babylon, it was a real place, but it, is, it represents so much more throughout Scripture. It shows up in Genesis and carries all the way through into the book of Revelation. And in the Old Testament, Babylon, it's first referenced in Genesis 10 and 11. Uh, it, it was the, the Tower of Babel. It was humankind's attempt to eliminate the need for God. And so throughout Scripture, Babylon, it symbolizes self-centeredness and an unwillingness to yield to God, to be independent from Him. And by that definition, Babylon is still very present today. Restoration, it requires dying to self. It requires releasing control, yielding to God. How often, how often do we pray for God to move while simultaneously trying to do it our own way? We say, God, give me, give me rest and, and give me peace, but God, I'm, I'm not willing to change what's going on in my calendar or in my life. God, bless my finances and, and restore financial uh, perspectives in my life, but, but God, don't, don't ask me to give or be generous. God, restore intimacy in my marriage, but I don't know that I'm willing to stop looking at porn just yet. God, help me succeed in my career, but I'm not going to worry about my character until later. Church, we need to remember, prayer is not about aligning God's will to our desires. Prayer, prayer is about aligning our will to God's desires. God is the one who is able to redeem what's lost. God is the one who can reconcile what's been fractured, but he can restore what's been broken, but his concern is not our kingdom. His concern is his kingdom. And that's why Jesus instructs us to pray in Matthew 6, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we can still pray for rest and peace in our lives. We can still pray for God to bless our finances or our marriage or our career, but our prayers are preceded by your kingdom come, your will be done in our finances. God, your will be done in my marriage or in your singleness. God, your will be done in our career path or in your retirement. We pray for God's preferred future, God's preferred future, to arrive in the present. And until that day, until that day, we continue to pray. And as we do, we have to remember, restoration is not an overnight process. In fact, Jeff Bezos once said that every overnight success is a 10-year process. And what needs restoration in your life today, it didn't happen in one day. Joy in marriage doesn't just disappear in one night. Peace doesn't just uh, evaporate after one incident. It's gradual, and so is restoration. It's a process. And restoration, it happens in starts and stops. There's a lot of hurry up and then wait in the kingdom of God. It happens over and, and over and over, but we don't have to wait without hope. You see, in Philippians 1 verse 6, it assures us that God, who began the good work within you, he will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. And so by praising God for past restoration, we recognize that it has begun. And by praying to God for future restoration, we recognize that it has not fully come. And it's in this in-between tension. It's in this in-between that we read verses 5 and 6. It says that those who plant in tears will harvest with shouts of joy. 
They will weep as they go to plant their seed, but they will sing as they return with the harvest. God promises that he will use our pain for his purpose. The same joy and and the same song that's referenced back in verses one through three will return, but we have a role to play. You see, blood, sweat, and tears, it's not always a metaphor. Many times we, we see the struggle in life as a sign that God is not working, but instead we need to see it as a signal to find where God is working. Because if we're going to be agents of restoration in our world and experience restoration in our life, not only do we need to praise God for the past and pray to God for the future, but we need to participate in God's present restoration. We need to participate. Yes, we praise him and yes, we pray, but we also participate where we are. And I know that in my life, if if you can relate so often, So often I do all that I can do and I do all this work and then I pray. And once I get to that point, usually just exhausted, then I'll pray and I'll go, okay, well, now that I've prayed, I'm just going to assume that God's got this and all is going to be well. And the temptation is to just pray and then sit back and watch. But instead we have to flip that sequence. We praise and we pray and then we do all that we can do. It's out of that posture that we then participate in God's kingdom because God is at work. God's not done, but God wants us to be involved. I love what Pastor Tim Keller says. He says, don't waste your sorrow. Don't waste your grief. You know, if a farmer were to take all of his seed and and just dump it into one place, it would be wasted. It wouldn't produce anything. And and the same can happen if we take all of our grief and all of our sorrow and we just dump it into one place. But if we allow our grief and our sorrow to anchor us where we're at, we're not gonna yield a harvest. We can't just lament over how things used to be or dream about how things could be. We need to allow those things to move us. You see, if we allow our grief and our sorrow to aid in the process of restoration, then our participation will lead to joy. Remember, restoration, it's God's redemption of creation, restoring things back into their intended form, how God intended and created them to be good and complete and whole. It is bringing the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. And God wants us to experience restoration in our lives. He wants us to. And so we praise God for the past. We pray to God for the future. We participate in the present. And the question really is, where do you need restoration? Where has there been collateral damage from the battles that you fought? What is lacking in wholeness and completeness in your life that, that God intends to make complete? What's robbing you of your joy? Where is God asking you to jump in and to participate in a restoration process? For many, it might be a relationship that needs to be restored. Maybe it's a relationship that's been strained and it's lost the joy that it once had. Maybe there's this root of bitterness in this relationship that just stands as a wall between you. Romans 12 verse 18 says, if it is possible as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And so maybe God is asking you to make an apology, 
Maybe God's asking you to initiate a conversation or maybe if you're holding on to resentment, maybe today is the day that you say, I need to forgive as far as it depends on you. Remember, the relationship may not be restored overnight, but you praise God for what he has done. You pray to God for what he will do and then you participate in the process. Maybe today it's, it's a financial restoration. Perhaps you lost a job or had some unexpected medical costs. Maybe you filled your car up with gas this week. <laughs> Maybe you're in some financial position that, that honestly you just never expected or anticipated in life. We praise God for the way that he's provided in the past. We pray to God for his future uh, restoration and provision. And then we ask God, how do I participate in this process? Is it a job transition? Is it working with a financial planner? Is it reworking the budget? Is it, is it downsizing? Is it tithing? I know for some that feels like counterintuitive, like I can't give if, if I don't have financial resources right now. And yet it's the only thing that God says, test me. Don't waste your sorrow. Don't waste your grief. Allow it to spur you on to action. Maybe, maybe you just don't feel close to God anymore. And when you first gave your life to Christ, you were on fire for him. And it felt like you could hear his voice and you could feel his hand guiding you everywhere you went. And, and now if, you, if you're honest, you're sitting thinking, man, is God even here? And you want that intimacy restored. James 4.8 tells us, come close to God and God will come close to you. And so you praise him for those past moments where his presence was just undeniable. And you pray for those future moments as well. And then you participate by asking God. You ask and you keep asking. You seek and you keep seeking. You knock and you keep knocking because God wants us to experience restoration. That's why Jesus came. He came to restore us. Through his sacrifice, he redeemed us. He reconciled us to God. In fact, it was his sorrow and his grief that led to our joy and our freedom. And now we have hope. We have hope that there will come a day when everything is permanently renewed and restored. I love this verse in Acts 3, this couple of verses. It says, now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Then, then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord, and he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah. For he must remain in heaven until the time for the final, what is it? Restoration of all things. Church, God is not done. There is more to come, and he wants us to be a part of what he's doing in our world. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me as we conclude in prayer today. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you that through Jesus Christ, that, that you have redeemed us, you have reconciled us, and ultimately you are restoring us. But God, in the midst of our fallen and our broken world, we know that there are so many things that have experienced collateral damage in our life. And so Father, would you help restore we thank you for your faithfulness, but God, we ask that, that you would continue to work in our lives, continue to work in our hearts. And would you show us what it looks like to be involved in the process? Would you help us to take the next step that we need to take? 
And with every head bowed and eyes closed, maybe you're here today. And that next step is to truly surrender your life to him. Maybe you've been trying to redeem and restore and reconcile your life to God on your own terms. And we know that none of us have that power. It is only by the sacrifice that Jesus made that we are made right with God. It is only because of what he did, shedding his blood, giving his body on the cross, that our sins are are removed, are atoned. And if that's you today and you need to receive him as your Lord, you need to trust him and believe that he is Lord and declare it with your mouth, following him from this day forward, then I wanna lead you in a simple prayer. A prayer that says, God, I acknowledge my sin and I wanna trust you and do things your way. Because he promises if we follow his way and avoid the way of the wicked, we will prosper. We will see success in life. And so if that's you, I'm gonna ask you to pray after me. You're gonna hear men and women all around the room praying this as well as an encouragement to you. Would you pray, dear God, I know that I'm a sinner, but today I ask you to forgive me. Forgive me of my sin. Jesus, come into my life to be my Lord, my Savior, and my forgiver. And in the best way that I know how, I turn my back on sin and I give my life to you. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen and amen. Would you give God a hand for what he's doing here?